The mission of God is the glory of God. The mission of God is the glory of God. Therefore, missions and gospel proclamation are ultimately about the glory of God as well. And the sooner you read your Bible with that overarching principle, the sooner it's all going to make sense to you. The mission of God is the glory of God. Now, God primarily displays his glory through the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, and a salvation that is entirely by faith. It is nothing of works that we contribute. It is entirely faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. We find then in the Bible that God is unveiling the glory of Jesus, specifically Colossians 1.18, so that in everything he, Jesus, might have the preeminence. Indeed, as somebody has said, history is his story, and we have the privilege of being a part of it. This is the overarching thing that God is doing in all of the world, in all of human history. It is what we are going to praise him for forever and ever. It is the glory of God. Now, Jesus is not the only way that God unveils his glory. There are many ways that God reveals his character to us. We know that all creation is a revelation of the character of God in the scale and scope and the symmetry and the beauty. We see the scale and the scope and the beauty of, of God himself as he built that into creation. We know that human beings bear uniquely the image of God and that God reflects his character in the makeup of what it means to be a human being. We know that angels are for his glory and even sin and the rebellion of Satan and uh, the rebellion of Adam and Eve and all humanity, that even these are things that serve to display the glory of God as it shows how terrible the absence of the glory of God is. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and how's that gone for us? Badly. We all die. We all miss the glory of God. So in that way, we can say even that hell is for the glory of God, that heaven is for the glory of God, that the old earth is for the glory of God, that the new earth is for the glory of God as well. The mission of God is the glory of God, and it's radiant display for the praise of his glory. Now, this principle is the bridge between Mission Sunday and Moses. We are continuing in our Moses series, and it's also the Mission Sunday message. And you're like, how is he possibly going to bridge those two things? And the bridge of this is that the mission of God with Moses was to display the glory of his name. That the mission of God in gospel evangelism is to display the glory of his name. Now, he does it very differently with Moses than he does it today in gospel proclamation. In Moses, it's not an incarnation. It's not a cross. It is judgment and punishment in events that we call the plagues. But if you can see that the purpose of both of these is exactly the same. The mission of God is the glory of God, and God's mission for Moses is for the glory of God as well. You read the story, and we find that there is an anti-God, and his name is 
Putin, I mean Pharaoh. <laughs> they both start with P. Sorry about that. Pharaoh and uh, this anti-God, Moses comes to him and says, God told me to tell you to let my people go. And this is what Pharaoh says. This is chapter five of Exodus, verse two. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so there we have uh, Pharaoh, and if you know the story, then you can say in your heart like I do, oh, Pharaoh, you're about to learn who he is, and you're not going to like it very much. One commentator describes this whole section as the battle of gods, the battle of gods. On the one side, you have Pharaoh, who we're not saying was a god, but in Egypt at that time, they thought he was a god, and, and Pharaoh, like many world leaders, thought he was god as well. And they worshiped him as the god who was in control of the rhythms that their entire lives depended upon. If you know anything about Egypt, you know that the, the Nile River floods, and it did in ancient days, it, flood, it flooded as faithfully as old, uh, old faithful geyser, like you just count on the flooding of the Nile. And as uh, that, that flooding happened, down came all the nutrients that made the land, the farmland there in the Nile Delta, uh, the most fertile land in the whole earth, except Indiana, of course. Uh, but the rhythm of planting and harvesting that, that agricultural dependency upon uh, a, a product, a, a harvest that would supply the needs that you had. This was the society. The whole thing was built on the annual rhythm of Nile and flood and plant and harvest. And Pharaoh was viewed as the God who was over all of that and that they depended upon. And what we're gonna find now is that God is about to dismantle every category for which Pharaoh was worshiped. Now, why would he do that? He says himself in chapter nine, verse 14, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. The mission of God is the glory of God. And every one of these 10 plagues is a weapon of mass destruction, truly. Uh, each of them would devastate even a modern nation like our own if just one of them was to, was to come. And so these plagues are not like just random where God's like, I think I'm going to send gnats. No, they are intentional, they have a purpose, and they are to show that the gods that the Egyptians worshipped and had their hope in are no gods at, at, uh, at all, that Pharaoh is a pretender, and that the God of Israel is the one true God. So with that said, let's get into the text. We are in chapter seven, beginning in verse one. And there's a ton of text. I'm not reading all of it. We're gonna kind of get the sense of the first five plagues. Look at verse one. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And then this note, now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now we see here God's all-knowing, sovereign control of everything. He says, I'm gonna do this, and then he does it. And this is a function, again, of his sovereignty and his omniscience, his all-power, that he can do things like this. You know, in athletics, there's a lot of, uh, and by the way, I'm wearing, in, it's Mission Sunday, I hope you got the sense of it. This is the Brazilian soccer jersey. I have a collection of soccer jerseys from various places that I've been. This morning I was trying to pick out which one. The color of this one is hard to miss. <laughs> so I, I picked this one. Our cameras are probably freaking out trying to get the whatever color this is, psychedelic yellow. Um, but in athletics, there's famous stories of athletes who would do this. You probably heard the story of Babe Ruth stands at the plate, points to the outfield, you know, I'm gonna hit it right there over that fence, and then he does it. And there's stories of Larry Bird, our own Indiana Larry Bird, who in the NBA would go to the, the bench and say, all right, you guys, just so you know, I'm gonna get the ball, I'm gonna go to right here, I'm gonna hit a three-pointer from right here. And then he would do it, and everyone was awe of the fact that they could predict exactly what they were going to do. But for God, this flows out of his sovereignty and his power. He is not wondering how Pharaoh will respond. He's not wondering what the future will hold. He is dictating it. He is saying this is exactly what's going to happen. And I note this just as a side note, as we live in a kind of geopolitical difficult time right now where there are a lot of questions and wonderings and what's going to happen. God is not in heaven wringing his hands, nor is he wringing his hands about what's going on in your life. He controls today. He controls the future. He says here, Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. I am going to harden his heart. Now next Sunday, we're going to talk a little bit about the challenge that we have in the plagues where sometimes it says Pharaoh hardens his heart. Other times it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and other times it says that God hardens his heart. So I wonder who's doing the hardening and who is responsible for the hard heart. That's next week, but I think uh, it might be interesting as perhaps you look in your own heart today and see some hardness. Who is responsible for that? So we find that Pharaoh's stubbornness now is going to serve a purpose in the hand of God. It is going to be the occasion for God to display his glory in great, quote now, great acts of judgment. And the result of it is going to be that Egypt and all the world, we find out in, in Joshua, for example, Rahab talks about the great things that God did. It was all the nations of the world that would be a buzz about the God of Israel and to display the fact that God is the God of Egypt. Not the sun God, not the land God, not the Nile God. There is only one God, and his name is Yahweh. And that's where this is going. Now verse 10. So Joe, uh, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. 
Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff, interesting detail, swallowed up the other staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so here we have it, game on, in the battle of gods. Moses goes to Pharaoh, and, and they, they do that first miracle that God showed Moses on Mount Sinai, where a staff became a snake. And this was proof to Moses that this indeed is God calling me to do this. So they go to Moses. Aaron throws down the staff. It becomes a snake. That would be impressive. If I did that right now, you'd all be in awe of it, right? We'll do whatever you say. But it's noted here that the ancient world was filled with sorcerers and we would call occultic type activities. And Egypt, to this day, is famous for the kind of occultic activities that it was involved in. I mean, how many movies about Egypt are, you know, have some book with incantations that bring mummies back from the dead? You know, this is a common Egyptian type movie, and indeed, they were involved in those kind of satanic, occultic activities. And Mo, uh, so Pharaoh summons some of his wise men who come, and by power of Satan, they do the same miracle. Now, notice the interesting detail. The snake of Aaron's staff swallows up all the others. Now, what do we take from that, that Aaron's snake was hungry? No, it is foreshadowing the fact that the power of God is going to overwhelm the power of Pharaoh. His snake ate all the rest. What did uh, Pharaoh do? It says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen. And so now we have the beginning of the famous 10 plagues. Okay, 10 plagues. There have been many attempts to try to discern a kind of organizing principle for the 10 plagues, like uh, why did they come in the sequence they did, or why are these ten, the 10 that they did and others. As good as any is uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who uh, notes that in, in Egypt there were 80 gods, and they clustered around broadly three categories, the Nile River, the land, and the sky. And if you think about it in those terms, just to chart these, the, the, the nine plagues minus the death of the oldest son, they all follow a similar, a similar pattern of uh, the first ones come from the river, the next ones come from the land, and then the last ones come from the sky. Now, is that exactly in the mind of God why he did it? I don't know, but it's as good as I came across to understand the logical sequence of these plagues. But let's get into the plagues now. So here comes plague number one, verse 14, chapter seven. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. <coughs> go to Pharaoh in the morning, and he is going, uh, as he's going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, 
that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know, here's this theme again, you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish of the Nile shall die, and the Nile shall stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. I bet they would. Now again, I just want to emphasize when, you, when it comes to like Egyptology, it's hard to overstate the importance of the Nile River. Egypt became the richest country in the world largely because of the Nile River and the economy that flowed from the Nile River. And so here we have God, where does he start? What is plague number one? What is God number one? Where is their hope? Where is their confidence? It's in the Nile River. Plague number one attacks the Nile River. Now, interestingly, the, the name that they had for the god of the Nile River was Hopi, okay? Hopi. So Hopi is about to become very unhoppy. <laughs> it all turns to blood. Did it work? One plague, one and done, did it work? Here is Pharaoh's response, verse nine, Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me, oh, I got ahead, I'm in the frogs, sorry, verse 22. So Pharaoh heard, or heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and note this, he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So that's plague number one. Pretty bad. Not enough. Plague number two. Frogs. Verse six, chapter eight. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And we have the beginning of this little sort of gamemanship where uh, Pharaoh says, I'll let you go, and then it goes away, and he goes, ah, it changed my mind, okay? But this is the first indication of it. Now, we talk about frogs. This may not sound that scary. In fact, I think some Egyptian boys kind of like this plague uh, at first because boys like frogs. But imagine frogs everywhere. Everywhere. You go home, and there's frogs all over the kitchen. You open the fridge. There's frogs in the fridge. You go to the pantry in the cookie jar, and there's frogs in the cookie jar. You go to get into bed, there's frogs in your bed. Frogs everywhere. You can see how this would be more than annoying. This would be like, what is going on with all the frogs everywhere? This is unlike anything seen in history. You have to think that maybe about now the Egyptians are going, maybe there is something to this God of Israel. They predicted the frogs, and sure enough, there's frogs everywhere. And even this one gets Pharaoh's attention. Verse nine, Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am uh, to plead for you and your servants and for your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow, 
Moses said, be it as you, as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There's that theme again. The mission of God is the glory of God. The frogs shall go away from you, and your houses and your servants and your people, they shall be left only in the Nile. And the point here is if it's God's power that brought the frogs, you pick the time, and it'll be God's power to get them out of here at precisely the time that you select. Does this one work? Verse 12, so Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, in the courtyards, in the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. You ever smell something where like a week later in your nostrils you swear you can still smell it? I have to think that massive piles of frogs decomposing across the land, that's a hard smell to get out of your your nose. The whole land stank from it. I'll bet that it did. So if we stopped right here, we'd have a bloody river and piles of frogs decomposing. And yet this is not enough for Pharaoh to essentially dismiss his entire workforce and to let Israel Go. Somewhere along the way, I think Moses was tempted to say, you know, Pharaoh, denial is a river in Egypt. (laughs) I'm on drugs, medication. (laughs) Does this work? Look at verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord said. So now we transition from plagues that come out of a river to plagues that come from the land. Chapter eight, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And this is indeed what happened. We're gonna kind of go through these sort of quickly now. But uh, what's interesting about this one is that this is the one that the magicians and the sorcerers, so they go, we can't do this one. Like, this has got to be God. This is the one that got their attention. I note here that if only God would have turned them into mosquitoes, there might have only been three plagues. I think that might have been the end of it. If you've ever been in Minnesota in the summer, you know what I mean. But this was a really bad one. Gnats everywhere. If you've ever been in a place where just the insects are taken over, been camping or something like that, this is misery. Did it work? Verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. Do you see a theme going on here? Indeed. Plague number four, flies. Similar to the gnats. I'm not gonna read the text, but Swarms of flies, and again, this is not like, why don't they just close their windows and pull the shades down? These are homes, they have no glass, they have no windows, they're just open air, and the flies just come in and they take over. What's interesting in the fly plague is that for the first time, God distinguishes between Israel and Egypt. There were no flies in Goshen. Where did the Israelites live? Goshen. He's starting to make a distinction between the people of God and those that are not So Pharaoh asked Moses to take the flies away. Moses does. Pharaoh refuses to let them go. Verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. That's plague number four. Here's plague number five, livestock. 
chapter 9, verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, so uh, let me backtrack. All the livestock of the Egyptians all suddenly die. Again, this is agricultural. This, this, you know, all the tractors stopped working. All the source of foods uh, all died at the same time. This would have been a devastating kind of plague in a, in a culture like this. They all die. You think, would this work? Verse 7, chapter 9, And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So Israel's livestock, they're all mooing. Egypt's livestock, they're all decomposing. And yet Pharaoh looks at that and says, nope. His heart was hardened. So I'm gonna stop right there, and you're like, wow, Mission Sunday and plagues. I, I'm still struggling to see the connection between these two. What is this all about? What, are, what is an epidemic of flies and gnats and dying livestock and bloody rivers and these sorts of things? What does this possibly have to do with missions? And friends, too often we miss the forest for the trees, or in this case, we miss the glory of God for the plagues. The plagues are not ultimately about just one-upping Pharaoh. It is not ultimately about even getting Israel out of Egypt or establishing the Passover. The plagues are about the glory of God. The plagues are about the mission of God, which is the glory of God. And God's mission is to display the glory of his name so that he only is praised. What is the first commandment at Mount Sinai when Israel gets there? You shall have no other gods before me. God is passionate for his glory and the exclusivity of his glory. He will not share his glory with anyone, and nor should he, or he would not be the most glorious being. This is about the glory of God. It is about the self-revelation of what God is like. It is about the right worship of the right God. And we know this because this is what God said it's about. Chapter 9, verse 15. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. You realize God could have just gone, boom! And, and Israel was instantly in the promised land, and all the Egyptians are dead. But he didn't do it that way, did he? Why did he do it? For this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What vision of God or what understanding of what God is like do you have? It had better include a God who is passionate for his own glory and for the praise of his own glory and invites us into the incredible privilege of joining with the angels and all creation in praising God now and forever. This is where all of this is going. Indeed, as two friends, uh, not personal friends, but book friends, have said about this, what the plagues of Exodus show is the inability of the obstinate king to maintain order. Rather, it is Yahweh and his agents, Moses and Aaron, who overcome in the cosmic struggle, demonstrating who really controls the forces of nature. Another, the salvation of Israel and the judgment of Egypt become the theater for God's glory, the place where his character and his name were displayed to the world. And friends, God is as committed today for the spreading of the glory of his name 
to, as, to, the, to the peoples of this earth as he has ever been. Now, does our world have gods? Well, you can just watch media for five minutes and easily identify the very same kinds of gods that were present in Egypt are very much the gods that our society worships to this day. It will show you that we have a Nile River, the economy, and money, which we trust in for the things that we need. We have gods of power and political might and military might that we trust to keep us safe. We idolize uh, ease and personal comfort and affluence, which swarms of flies in our homes would overturn as much today as then. Our Nile rivers and livestock are our personal finance and our 401ks and our pensions. How do we feel when these things are threatened, even in our modern day? Think of the belly aching people are doing right now about the price of gas. It doesn't rise to plague level. And yet you'd almost think so to listen to some people. Like, this is terrible. And I'm not a fan of the high price of gas, okay? But it just shows you how a little thing in our modern society, all of a sudden people are up in arms about, and it's nothing like the Nile River turning to blood. How is God displaying his glory today? Is it plagues and livestock dying? The Bible tells us how God is doing it. Hebrews 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The mission of God, friends, has not changed. It is still and always will be his own glory. What has changed is the message and the means by which God is glorified. And this is what Jesus' death on the cross to redeem us from our sins and his resurrection to save us from death are God's ultimate plague, God's ultimate sign and wonder to this world for all time for all people. So if frogs and gnats don't do it for you, if you're bored to tears right now because you have no idea what the relevance of these ancient plagues are, then I'm here to tell you today, it is forever the, the justice of God, the wrath of God, but in Jesus, the love and the mercy and the grace of God that displays his character as well and is very much about his glory. So how about, not the gnat, not the frog, not the Nile, how about the incarnate Jesus Christ coming into this world as the display, the full radiance of the glory of God and dying as a servant on the cross for your sins, resurrected to conquer death, alive at the right hand of God, coming again, new heaven, new earth, all nations gathered together for the glory of God. Does that get you going, okay? 
Because that is the gospel, and that is the church, and that's what we're doing, and that's why we've got these missionaries and mission agencies and praise and go and funding and praying and purposing and, and money to Ukraine like we did last week, and all these things are a part of what it looks like when a congregation is on mission with God for his glory. Now, we may look at Pharaoh's heart that hard heart, that heart that refuses to believe, and think, what was his problem? And yet how many people, by the millions, have heard the greater display of the glory of God in Jesus and similarly hardened their heart and refused to believe? The gnats don't display the love and the mercy of God, but the cross of Jesus Christ does. It is a better word. It is a better miracle. It is a better display of the glory of God. It is a clearer word of the glory of God than Pharaoh ever had. And yet many harden their hearts to even the ultimate display of the glory of God. And I say to you, if your heart is hard today, what's it take for you? What's it take? Might your heart not follow Pharaoh, but follow Moses? And this is the intersection that we have between missions and Moses. The miracles under Moses redeemed Israel out of Egypt, and the miracle of Jesus is a kind of exodus as well, for sinners out of the wrath and punishment of God and into the grace, the mercy, and the love of God, into indeed a kind of promised land where we find, as Hebrews says, our rest in Jesus, and we find in Jesus a better word, the ultimate word. And I, I say just this to you today, like, could gnats and flies possibly lead you to personal faith in Jesus Christ? What a wonder that would be. But if you trust in him today, right now, believe in Jesus that he did die on the cross for your sins and he was resurrected, that he is the son of God, that the Bible is true, that you will have a kind of personal exodus and that you will find salvation in Jesus' name. And that message, which is the gospel, missions is the megaphone is the megaphone of the miracle of Jesus and the message of Jesus. And that message and miracle all serve the purpose of the mission of God, which is the glory of God. And I would say that the people, the people that you find are that are the most impassioned about sharing their faith with others are the people who are most impassioned about the glory of God in Jesus Christ. When this is low, this is low. When this is high, People go all over the world to do it. So where are you at today? The glory of God, the mission of God, the gospel of God and the person of Jesus, these are all the things that our hearts must treasure or we will not care at all about God's mission, his gospel, or his son. <clears throat> Pastor Steve, are you somehow comparing our beloved missionaries 
to frogs and gnats. Yes, I am. I am saying exactly that. Only our missionaries have a better message than the gnats ever did. The plagues told of God's wrath and justice. The cross tells of God's love and salvation, God's righteousness, God's forgiveness. And so I conclude today with the same word to the pharaohs here or maybe online. You're the king of your own little fiefdom. You've got your own little thing that you're, you, you're passionate about, you care about. Do you realize that God slowly dismantles all the kings and pharaohs and all the little kingdoms? Slowly dismantles all of the glory that man tries to hold to himself. And he does this through trials and troubles and suffering, through disease and cancer, and ultimately by death. Did you know today you can go to the Museum of Antiquities in Cairo, Egypt, and there are many of the pharaohs of Egypt, the great pharaohs of Egypt, their mummies are on display. And you see what happens, the final word for all the kings and the queens, for indeed for all of us. And I would urge you today, don't harden your heart. Rather, open it as God's mission for his glory is to share salvation through his son to the whole world. And I would urge you to bend the knee and to believe today. Moses, mission, and the message of Jesus. Amen.